Hello and welcome to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield and this is a podcast about our deepest values, the stories that shape us and how we can have better conversations about all the very many things that we disagree on. Every episode I speak to someone with some kind of public voice. Politicians, journalists, novelists, academics, artists, religious leaders and ask them about what they believe My hope is that by listening to a real range of different perspectives and positions expressed by complicated, multifaceted people, I can challenge my own temptation to tribalism and maybe model something of wider use. In this episode, I spoke to Alistair Burt. Alistair is a British politician who served as MP for North East Bedfordshire from 2001 until 2019, when he was one of the 20 Tory MPs to have the party whip withdrawn by Boris Johnson. While in Parliament, he served as a Minister of State for really almost all the major departments, latterly as Minister for the Middle East in the Foreign Office. We spoke about the dangers of polarisation, his Christian faith, and why he thinks being a moderate isn't just a cop-out. I hope you enjoy listening. Alistair Burt, I'm going to ask you the chunky question that I ask everyone um, and not apologise for the scale and the size of it, but it's definitely not a uh, small talk, easy warm up asking someone what they hold sacred. And I don't necessarily mean anything religious by this, although that is what it is for some people, but it's really about the deep principles, the deep values. And one way of getting to it is times in your life where you felt compromised or pressured to compromise, that 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 sort of disgust reaction to something often reveals something that we're holding sacred and we feel very strongly about. I don't actually think we can get to this in ourselves very easily, but even asking the question is a good start, I think. What came up as you've been reflecting on this? Well, thank you very much for the opportunity and thank you very much for the question. Uh, And yes, I I had a think about it as to what it meant in terms, you know, were we talking just biblical values or other things? And, And I got a sense that Actually, what you're looking for are the are the real sticking points uh, in 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 life and career, which can be secular as well as um, as well as biblical. And I I came out with these, and and sort of divided into two. Uh, and firstly, a, a biblical instruction to feel that I should be making the most of all my talents. Um, uh, I, I'm I'm very affected by that parable. That gives you a sense that if you, whatever talents you have, you are to use them. Secondly, you know, to be true to yourself. Um, And I'm fortunate that I'm in a profession where I had the opportunity to demonstrate that. Uh, Many years ago, uh, as a parliamentary private secretary, I refused to support the government on a vote on Sunday trading. Uh, If you remember that all those years ago, keep Sunday special and things like that. Uh, and it was a three-line whip. It was the only three-line whip that Mrs. Thatcher lost. And I was a parliamentary private secretary, and I had to go to my boss and said, I can't vote for this. Um, I wasn't asked to resign, um, but I did have a sticking point, and uh, that was a, a, a sense that I could do that. I'm, I'm fortunate I'm in a career where that could be done. And, of course, later on, I left. I resigned as a minister, and I left parliament because I could not do what I was being asked to do. I'd love to hear a bit about your childhood. When I'm talking to people with public voices in public life from a range of positions, one of the things I think is useful is to locate people in their stories, to not just have people being kind of positions on sticks, but the kind of complicated, uh, diverse um, human beings that we are and the ways that 
we've been shaped. So I'd love to hear about your childhood and particularly if there are any ideas, political, religious, philosophical, that you think have really formed you. Um, I had a very happy childhood uh, and uh, I suppose that has shaped the individual that I am. I had a very happy and settled home life. And uh, I'm, I'm obviously aware as a grown up and that, that not everyone has the same opportunity as I had, but I had a very settled home life with my mum and dad. My father's a family doctor. I still have him. He's 98 years of age and lives about 10 minutes away. Uh, I lost my mother last year and she was 98 when she died. So family has been very important. And I was very rooted. I was born and brought up in a little town called Bury, just on the edge of Manchester, where my father was uh, a local family doctor. I went to one school only. Uh, I went to Berry Grammar School as a small boy, and I stayed right the way through to 18. Um, I was head boy, captain of the cross-country team, senior cadet. Uh, I, I had an institution that shaped me as well. I was a member of my local church, Berry Parish Church in the centre of town with a very charismatic local rector uh, who was a, a big influence on life. So I was, I was formed in a way institutionally. And so when I went on to university and then into the Conservative Party, that that sense of belonging has always been very important uh, to me. And it, it's given me a strong foundation. It, it means I hope I've been able to understand when people haven't had that. But I suppose there is a residual sense that the happiness and that I have enjoyed in life shouldn't be unique. And when I come across misery and upset, and you do as a member of parliament um, and, and as a believer, uh, you're hurt by it because you realise that what you have and what you may sometimes take for granted isn't everybody's daily experience. And when you come across people who are abused and you come across situations of conflict and breakup and separation and polarisation, which just aren't part of my background or makeup. I do understand them because I've worked to understand them, but it's with a feeling of, I wish you could feel something different. Uh, and I suppose that the background and the rootedness uh, that I had, uh, I wish others could have, uh, could have shared. And what, if you could say one thing about conservatism, which is what drew you to it, what kept you in it. And I know the relationship with the Conservative Party right now is possibly complicated and painful, but um what what is what is the the big idea that made you go there and not to Labour or somewhere else? Lots of the conservative politicians I've talked to actually came to conservatism via the left, but you didn't. No, but I sort of brought the left with me. If you speak to to my friends in, in politics, um, I, <laughs> all right, there's a, there's a serious and a less serious side to it. Firstly. I never had a sense that the Conservative Party did not stand for good values that I felt I was being brought up with. Um, uh, it, when I first stood for Parliament, it was the Conservative Party that wanted to remain in the European Economic Community. The Labour Party, when I first stood for Parliament, wanted to come out. It was the Conservative Party that wanted to stand up for individual rights, um, uh, particularly in trade unions at a time when trade union decisions were taken on open car parks, uh, where if people didn't put their hands up to support a strike, they were hit by a handbag full of stones. Uh, and the Conservative Party stood against that. 
the Conservative Party believed in uh, multilateral disarmament, not unilateral disarmament. Uh, these were things that uh, that I felt were important, um, and uh, I. So there were political issues that that drew me more to the conservative side, but I was always a uh, I, on the left of the Conservative Party. I didn't believe in capital punishment and never voted for capital punishment, which was a big issue when I was first elected. I remember I was um, I was elected in 1983. There was a vote on capital punishment uh, within about six weeks of being elected, and I voted against it. And I remember a very vehement party supporter and donor in Berry telling me, you've just lost us the next election. I didn't vote for you to do this. So it's a very big issue. But I... Can I... Sorry to interrupt. There were... My mind is slightly blown that in 1983, capital punishment in the UK was still a live issue. I thought it was outlawed in the 30s. Oh, no, no, no. Well, the last person to be, to be hanged in, in the United Kingdom was in the 1960s. Capital punishment was abolished um, uh, in my lifetime, uh, and it was a live political issue. Um, I, I could turn very easily to a, the handbook of the Conservative Party's conference in 1982. I will find a motion, this, this association calls for a return of capital punishment. Um, it, it was particularly directed at policemen, uh, child murderers, you know, I grew up in the Northwest. We, we were within touching distance of the Moors murderers. They, they, these things are very deep. And um, you will find people today, this is not an open and shut case. Capital punishment still resonates with people who feel very strongly that there's an element of justice. I've chosen a different course, but it, it's held with a passion. So it, as a conservative in those days, I felt comfortable in being my sort of conservative. But the defining factor was my Auntie Betty. Uh, my Auntie Betty lived down the road. And if I told my Auntie Betty I was going to do anything other than join the Conservative Party, uh, it, she, it, it just would have been the end of everything. Um, I, I, rem I remember I was nine. This is how early I got into it. I was nine in the election of 1964, which clearly I don't remember very much of. But I, I remember my parents reacting to Harold Wilson becoming prime minister and not being terribly pleased. And I think I said something to my Auntie Betty about Harold Wilson and sort of I'd, I'd, I'd seen him and sort of, you know, I was I was interested at nine. And she just said, but he's Labour. We don't like Labour. And that was it. You know, that was it. The end of the conversation. I think I've come on a bit since then. So the combination of what the Conservative Party stood for and my Auntie Betty, that did for me. Yeah, I think I mean, it sounds like a jokey point, but I more and more believe that we are, and you know, it, what's interesting is that it's where theology and behavior economics and neuroscience are all kind of lining up in terms of how humans actually make decisions is not as a sort of ra rational evidence crunching argument analysis machine, but much more out of our relational humanity and the, the people that we love and we trust are the people who sh help shape us and form us and that in and itself isn't a bad thing. You know, we need to be slightly careful that it's not just tribal hegemonies. But um, yeah, I think you, you're not alone in that the path you chose uh, is is not a kind of rational individual of pure autonomy, but more complicated than that. And uh, you've been very open about being a Christian. I'd love to hear, was that just a kind of unfraught element of your childhood? Did you have a conversion experience? 
what drew you to the church? Um, my father's commitment was was very plain, um, uh, and I, I I didn't I didn't doubt as as I grew up that there was that the explanation of Christianity for the answer to the question what is life seemed to me to be the best one um and i was influenced by by good teachers and i suppose i was able to combine an intellectual understanding of it obviously as you get older you don't do it at first um with an emotional pull uh and uh, it, it all came together i have always been more on the evangelical wing um for many years uh, Eve and I were regulars at Spring Harvest, and we mixed with Graham Kendrick, with Clive, Ruth Calver, uh, uh, Jeff Lucas, colleagues such as this, uh, and we found their faith um, infectious. So th there has not been a conversion experience as such. It has been, I hope, a, a, a revelation over time. Um, it's not always been, uh, been easy. I think it's been easy on God's side because... It's always been so constant. It's been more difficult with me doing the odd thing that you know you you, you feel uncomfortable about. But the, the revelation of Jesus Christ as Savior was was something that I I learned as a child uh, and have come to believe in as the explanation. I am not an intolerant Christian. Uh, if you want to worship someone else, I am not going to kill you because of that. And I cannot understand those whose faith drives them to kill someone else. I don't think that faith does <coughs> at all. I think faith is abused uh, by men for power uh, and money. Uh, and the way in which faith has been abused across the Middle East hurts me deeply every day as a person of faith. Um, uh, but mine, I suppose it is the classic Anglican solid uh, a belief system that I need. If it was taken away, my life would be much emptier. So, you know, whatever people can read into that, uh, they can do. I'm, I'm sort of intrigued by whether, it, you know, it is now easier for you to speak about it in the, in the way that you saw, you know, Tony Blair feel more easy, more open about it. Did you, how much is navigating that, you know, what's personal, what's political, the, the nervousness people have about bringing religion into politics? What's been your journey around that? I, I've not found that too difficult. I mean, for many years, I wrote for Third Way. Um, I went to Spring Harvest as, uh, and was on the teaching staff at Spring Harvest. My, my faith was never particularly, was never secret. Um, on the other hand, I didn't talk about it all the time in Parliament, but most believers don't. It was just known. If anybody wanted to ask about it, about it I, would, I would say so. I did become concerned, um, and this will have come up, I'm sure, in other conversations, when faith began to get wrapped up in one or two particular issues, not least sexuality. Um, and it seemed, you know, your faith, uh, you, you know, you were defined by, by this issue. And if you said you were a Christian, oh, well, you're a homophobe then, are you? And all that. Um, I voted for equal marriage. I supported um, David Cameron, you know, very strongly in relation to that. Um, and that led to a falling out with some. Uh, and I, I still take the view that, it is, it is an issue, but there's so much more to faith than that. Um, and I think we, the concentration on this has been very damaging for all of us, all these gender issues. 
And we need to be very careful that we do not lose so much that's important with spirituality and our relationship with uh, with God just on this issue. And again, it comes back to that sense of tolerance uh, and the need to recognize one neighbor, one's neighbor and work with others that I mentioned in a different context. It, it applies in this uh, as well. Um, and, and again, I found that my nature was more adapted to working through these things than than feeling aggrieved and walking you know, walking away. I think, I think I know the answer to this question uh, because of the way you've spoken out about it before. But I'm always you know, polarization is quite a hard thing to quantify, and there have been, you know, politics in particular has always been adversarial, hasn't it? In the UK, you know, you have to watch this house and look at the seventies and to realise that. I think you do, but just spell it out for me whether you think this is kind of worse and deepening polarization. And then I'm going to ask you the really tough question, which I've asked lots of people seeking for an answer. What's what's driven it? How have we ended up in this very heightened, very tribal that no one is enjoying, but we don't f- feel like we know a way out of it? You're correct in thinking there's never been a great golden age on this. Um, you and I are not Old enough to remember the fights of the 30s when the fascists were on the streets of London, London and big cities. We were certainly around for the poll tax riots and and stuff like that. Um, so it, it's not that uh, the miners' strike, of course, was formative. I was a young MP, 83, 84, 85, all that. So it's not that there have not been great divides in politics before, but I think. The way in which the general population has moved to a situation whereby there's no recognition of middle ground and that if I disagree with you, I have to disagree with you so totally as to reduce you as well as your argument to nothing. And if I do not do this, I will be accused by others of not having true conviction. So we've reached a situation where being being a moderate is is so very difficult and i think it's absolutely disastrous without question that's why i i worried about the drift in my own party uh if you're looking for reasons i will be straightforward about brexit i think the arguments about brexit the way it was conducted by some was so divisive and the way in which we got to a stage where you were deemed to be a traitor Uh, if you do not support a strong argument for the United Kingdom leaving the EU. I think some of my uh, colleagues and some people in the party simply left their senses. Uh, And that is an element, but it's it's not the sole cause. It's a reflection of that sense of polarisation that I can only be right if you are totally wrong. And in all the work that we do, life just isn't like that. And history tells you that You have to constantly revise what you thought was correct because circumstances change. And if you've become so polarised on something, you won't be able to do it. And you're no use to man or beast in those circumstances. So I'm sure like everybody else you've spoken to, you have to mention social media. Um, You know, looking below the line in an article or following a thread uh, is is just soul-destroying. Occasionally it's funny, uh, but most of the time... Because you're not sure if people are real or not, but there's enough of them that are. Mm. The attitudes betrayed are just horrendous. Uh, and women colleagues in particular, those who have been subject to, to abuse, 
and threats of, of violence and everything. We never had that. We never had that 30 odd years ago, not in, in the way in which it is. Um, this is going to hell in a handcart. And, and, you know, sometime people are going to have to wake up to this. Otherwise, their politics will simply be extremist politics on one side or the other and we'll be in real trouble. Yeah. It feels like it's both a, a, a structural problem out there, but also an individual problem for us and our practices and our habits and the choices that we're constantly making when we feel that, you know, that sense of fight or flight that kicks in. You're often described as, well, you even in, the, you know, your, the speeches around um, your final speech as one of the nicest men in Parliament. You and Stephen Timms always comes up when um, when we talk about that. What? What habits and practices did you have, um, and how did you how did you try and um, be someone who resisted those tribal influences? I I just didn't have to, to be honest. I mean, I I uh, uh, I think I I I learned if I had to learn it, and I don't remember having to simply because I had good people in Berry who always kept me grounded, um, not to be anything you weren't. Uh, I was never a Mr. Dialer quote, uh, not telling any tales out of school, but it is not unknown for newspapers to ring MPs about an, an issue and say and, and say to them, would you say that? Uh, and then they give you a quote which appears the next day on MPs Fury at. Um, I didn't do it. <laughs> I was just never interested in doing that. Um, and I never made rabid speeches because it it wasn't me. And the the thing that's important in the house uh, and in life is is as much authenticity as you as you can have. Don't be what you're not. Uh, and as I say, I can't pretend that I had a, an outrageously difficult background or anything else. I don't have those memories and those stories. Um, and interestingly, in dealing with current events, I'm not black either. I don't know what it's like to be in some of the situations that people are talking about out on the streets now. I don't know that, but I do know I have to understand uh, and I have to work, but I, I, I won't pretend and make speeches about things I don't understand, but I will have to work on it. But the friendliness and the friendship across the house, the, you know, the, the niceness, it just comes of being polite uh, and <laughs> you get more things done by being polite to people than being shouty at them. It's as straightforward as that. But I hope I'm reasonably identifiable from the day I walked into the place to the day I walked out. My politics are more or less the same. Um, I stayed a, a centre-left, pro-European, internationalist, conservative all the way, and I didn't change that very much. I learned where I was wrong. There were some things I thought about the 80s. I'm not sure if we're right about this. And I found out later, no, do you know what? We're right. Mrs. Thatcher was right about those sort of things. Uh, and I, I've been through all that. So being nice doesn't mean you're right all the time. And I've certainly made mistakes like anyone else. But I rather like my colleagues. I like being involved with them. The Christian Fellowship meant you were working across the parties. And, and by far, the, the, the great formative influence was the football team. I was a member of the Westminster Wobblers for, for 20 odd years. Uh, and when you got together with, with people who love football, the only thing you talked about was football. 
weren't interested in politics. You you got into the dressing room, you got on the plane with Laurie McEnemy, and you flew to Germany to 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 play against the German parliamentarians. Politics, forget it. You were you were all off as the lads as the team. And and that relationship never let you down. Whenever I was in trouble in the House of Commons on a policy, you know, I never had a hard time from a lot of colleagues because they knew me and they knew they could ask me a tough question on politics, but it wouldn't go any further than that. Uh, and therefore, we could deal with it in the right way. I was I was fortunate with a lot of good friends. That's as simple as and that. Do you think that there will come a tipping point? You know, your experience is of a is of a Conservative Party in a particularly um, focused mode, um, uh, and Labour has also been, you know, trying to work out how it. Parties have always been broad have tended to have to be broad churches in the UK to get every, to get anything done on the left and the right. And we feel like we're in a moment where both the major parties are struggling with that and in some cases kicking against the broad church nature of parties and trying to narrow them or have had seasons of trying to narrow them. Um, and it reflects the broader sense of kind of narrower and narrower tribes within tribes. Um, do you think we will get to a point where it becomes clear that this is a zero-sum game and that collaborating and working with people that we deeply disagree with on some things is the only way forward? Or do you fear that there's just a downward trajectory from here? Gosh, that sounds so hopeless, even as I say it. No, I, I don't think it sounds hopeless. But what I would say in answer to your question is, I think it will get worse before it gets better. Um, I think the nature of politics uh, as also changed in the sense that people are much more demanding of their representatives to be like them. I, 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 I couldn't count the number of letters I got on the European issue from people who said, you are my representative, you must vote X. And what I used to do was uh, I would get these coming in sort of all day, every day, and I would sometimes take the names and addresses off and send send respective Brexiteers and, and pro-Remainers the letter from their neighbour and said, I've just had this from your neighbour. Which constituent do you expect me to represent? Because you are demanding I vote the way you want because I am your MP. I am your neighbour's MP as well. What do you expect me to do? <laughs> and we've seen this right across the board. People saying... I voted for you. You must do this. And people's politics have become narrower. And again, as we discussed earlier, this is from a whole series of things. But remember, people are growing up now in a situation where they do not have to encounter anything they don't like. If you don't like uh, uh, the politics of The Guardian or The Daily Mail, you don't need to read them. But because you had to watch the BBC and ITV news, you occasionally heard things you didn't like or disagree with. You don't need to do it now. You can have all your entertainment and, uh, and information systems tailored to your beliefs. So you're constantly reinforced. The man in the United States does this all the time. You know, he knows he doesn't have to win any votes from people who didn't vote for him last time. All President Trump has to do is consolidate his base. Accordingly, the less information they have about anything else, the better. And that direction is, is where we are. And it's getting worse. It will get better because ultimately a world in which people solely reinforce their own beliefs will fail because you will reach crunch points. And if these are resolved by violence, 
then we're all going to be the losers. Some will be. And that's why I think it'll get worse before it gets better, before people take uh, heed to their senses. It's why I'm a passionate internationalist. The, 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 the international order post-1945 wasn't built by a bunch of well-meaning lefty liberals. Uh, it was built by people who'd fought in the war, who'd seen their countries destroyed. Uh, and they said never again, and they meant it, and they built a structure to avoid it. We have a generation of politicians now who know nothing of that. I don't mind the fact that they've not experienced it. Thank God they haven't. I do mind the fact that they don't seem to care. Uh, and they're, they're prepared to uh, reintroduce nationalism uh, as, as, the, as the building block of their political uh, process and their political success, either individually or through their party, regardless of the fact that we know where that leads. If you put your country first, you are inevitably somebody is going to turn out second and third and they're not going to like it. And accordingly, we learnt all those lessons at, at the cost of millions of lives. I think we're losing them. Uh, and therefore, I resent that tide in politics. And it will only reverse when people recognise that they're going down a wrong road. That's what will take leadership. But I suspect it may come at a cost of bad things happening before people realise we can't go on like this anymore. And I will never stop being a voice uh, one way or another to, to urge people to pull back uh, and to realise what they're losing. This is a challenge both to you and to myself, because I try and listen to a really wide range of voices on a wide range of subjects, which means I often feel deeply confused and conflicted about things. But I think that's fine. Um, glad you, I'm glad you feel confused as well. Yeah, um, it's tiring, but I think important. But one of the one of the pushbacks that I sometimes get, Theo sometimes get, people with I guess our sort of temperamental lean sometimes get is it's very easy to be a conflict avoidant moderate, and that actually sometimes the only way to change the world is through this more rabble rousing, single minded, you know, basically whatever it costs, we have to do it to. Um, you know, solve injustice of whatever kind. You know, we have to push back against the woke Taliban or we have to push back against the bigoted right or whatever whatever it is, these labels that we use, the kind of, I feel increasingly, if I'm being really honest, the pressure to get in the trenches with one side or other and this sense that you're a, um, you're a traitor, you won't be unfamiliar with that usage, um, if you if you won't. And I think there's bad versions of that argument, but sometimes when it's around very powerful, painful instances of injustice, I also feel the pull of it. Have you had those kind of conversations? Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and, and I think you, you make a very good point. Not everything in life is capable of a resolution by saying, well, you think this, we think this, therefore there's a position in the middle. Absolutely correct. And the risk for moderates is, is that that becomes the, the, the sense. It's just cowardice sometimes, I think, in myself. It is correct. And, and there are times the consensus then becomes completely false. And it's in, those, it's in those circumstances that you do look to the leaders who will take you to a situation of, of confrontation because there is a challenge that has to be, has to be made. And the Conservative Party has been full of those uh, brave people as has the Labour Party uh, and, and others. I suppose the art of politics is making a judgment on that, Elizabeth. What's the judgment? When is it the right time to do that? And what is the issue? 
I think what we were talking about was a concern that everything has now been put into that bracket. That's what we get from social media and the like. Everything is life and death and no compromise. Ultimately, the, the Brexit argument uh, was one where there, there isn't a compromise possible. You're either, you either believe that the United Kingdom should stay in the EU or you shouldn't. And the only way to resolve that was democratically, and it was. Uh, and I have always accepted the result. I know plenty of people don't, and there's all sorts of questions. But ultimately, I believed, firstly, that the vote reflected the view. And I also felt that the arguments that we had made over a generation that the benefit of the United Kingdom should be staying in the EU had failed. Um, and, and I said very publicly in one of the speeches in the House Commons, I failed. I tried for 40 years to persuade you that we should stay in the EU. I haven't succeeded. Accordingly, we must now do something different. Um, uh, I just would have appreciated if the winners had accepted they'd won uh, and had allowed us to get on with things. But that's a, that's a different story. No, you're correct. It's a matter of judgment when you go into the trenches. Um, I think when you see uh, a so-called police officer with his knee on the neck uh, of a black man on the ground, defenceless, uh, you realise you have a place in the trenches, uh, but you expect democratic politicians to be in the trenches with you. You don't actually expect anyone not to be in the trenches in those circumstances. Uh, and you take whatever action you can to say uh, these practices must end. You then look very critically at your own society uh, and what is it that you're not seeing and you challenge yourself and then say, where are the trenches now? No, the, the trenches are still there. You're right. My point is you have to make judgments. The trenches aren't for everything. And even if you're in the trenches, there is an opportunity for a truce and to look out at who's at the other trench and see what you can do. I've certainly confronted wickedness um, and in the Middle East and the work that I've done uh, as a foreign affairs minister, uh, I have signed off armed supplies to people. I have known when we had those conversations, would you sign off an order that sent a drone strike to kill an enemy of the United Kingdom? I never had to do that because I wasn't sufficiently senior. Would I have done? You bet I would have done uh, without, uh, you know, without a qualm, providing it was the right thing to do. It's just not everything is like that. And before you reach that stage, do everything you can to avoid it. Um, and, and that's just what I've always believed. And uh, I, I think in the experience and the career that I've had, I, I've had, you know, I, I, I've had all sorts. I've had occasions when I think the, the conversations have averted something and occasions when I've walked away and realised the conversations mean nothing because people that we're dealing with are so, so determined to secure as I say, it is almost invariably men. It's almost invariably about power over others uh, and money. Um, and you, you have to reach a point where that is not your values and you are prepared to fight against it. I am left with a throwaway comment you, you made about a truce and had the image of the Christmas Day truce in the First World War and people getting out of the trenches and playing football together, linking back to your image about football. And I feel... I hope that maybe there may be some truces we could call. Um, but in the meantime, Alistair Burt, thank you so much for speaking to me. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to The Sacred. 
I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. The producer of this episode is Soup Shop Productions, and it is a project of the Think Tank Theos. We'd really love to hear your thoughts, whether via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast, or me at Theos Elizabeth, or the sacred podcast at gmail.com if it's easier to write in long form. As always, please do rate and share so others can find the podcast. We're also now available on Spotify, so it's even easier to take the sacred with you wherever you go. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos, you can connect via the website at theosthinktank.co.uk.